It's here, it's happening. Welcome to our final day before election day episode of Down Ballot Counts. I'm Emily Wilkins, a congressional and campaigns reporter with Bloomberg Government. With me, as always, is one of the top election experts in DC, our very own Greg Giroux. In just a minute, we'll be joined by our colleague Zach Cohen, who also covers campaigns in Congress, for a minute-by-minute guide of how to watch the polls tomorrow night like a pro. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. But first, as always, we bring you Jerose Gem. Thank you, Emily. Jerose Gem is a political number of note I introduce on every episode of Down Ballot Counts. But for this special election eve episode, I'm going to invoke a co-host prerogative and give you two numbers, one and five. If you've listened to the Down Ballot Counts podcast or followed our work at our website, about.bgov.com, you will know that Republicans need a net gain of one seat to win control of the Senate and five seats to win control of the House. Strategists in both parties expect that Republicans will gain at least five seats in the House and win control of that chamber, uh, though so many races are very close and there's a wide range of possible outcomes. That will have implications for governance in the next Congress and for the 2024 election. A 225-seat House Republican conference will be much tougher to manage than a 240-seat Republican conference, though neither may be easy to lead. It's tougher to predict the outcome of elections in the evenly divided Senate, which Democrats control only because of the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Kamala Harris. Democrats are the defending party in close races in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, and New Hampshire. Republicans have tough seats to defend in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, and perhaps in North Carolina and Ohio. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is your Jero's Gem 1 and 5. Thank you so much, Greg. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. All right. So we know that tomorrow is the election day. Always an exciting time for election nerds like us. But Zach, Greg, we we have to acknowledge that it's not really just tomorrow. That said, we're going to go ahead. We're going to pretend that right now it's November 8th, that it's 6.59 p.m. The first polls are about to close. We're going to break down what we're going to watch hour by hour, starting now. It's 7 p.m. on the East Coast. All voting has been completed in Indiana, Kentucky, Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, Vermont, and in half an hour, it's going to wrap up in the key states of North Carolina, Ohio, and West Virginia. Greg, what are the races that you're starting to watch right now? I think a couple of races I'm watching, Emily, are in uh, my home state of Virginia. Uh, Virginia's second district, you have a big race between uh, Democratic Congresswoman Elaine Luria and Republican State Senator Jen Kiggins, a district that was made more Republican in redistricting. Uh, Luria is a member of the January 6th Select Committee. Uh, she's probably an underdog in this race. And so maybe that's not the best bellwether. So I may even look a little bit north of that between Richmond and Washington, D.C. at the 7th Congressional District between uh, two-term Democratic incumbent Abigail Spanberger and Republican Gesley Vega. Um, this is a district that is uh, more Democratic than the district Spanberger won in 2018 and 2020, but about three-quarters of it is new to her, so a lot of new voters that Spanberger needed to introduce herself to. So I think if Republicans are defeating incumbents like Spanberger on election night, that could presage big Republican gains later in the evening. Both of those are definitely going to be saying the tone for the night. Zach, what races are you keeping an eye on? 
I'll be watching North Carolina, uh, especially the Senate race. If Republican Ted Budd, the congressman, is solidly defeating Democrat Sherry Beasley in that open Senate race, Republicans are definitely in for a good night. And the bar is not high for a quote-unquote solid performance. No Senate winner in North Carolina has won more than 55% of the vote since 1974, as we've been talking about over the last few months. Another open North Carolina seat is the House race between Democrat Wiley Nickel and Republican Bo Hines. Biden only carried these Raleigh suburbs by two points in 2020, so they should serve as an early bellwether for where Democrats have lost clout since taking control of Washington two years ago. One caveat about North Carolina, we could have something of a quote-unquote blue mirage because of the way the Tar Heel State counts mail-in ballots. We'll see the results of mail-in ballots that likely skew toward Democrats before we see in-person votes that tilt Republican. That also means they'll be able to count votes quickly, which should be helpful barometers, but something to keep an eye on that could shift over the course of the night. Then at 8 o'clock, we've got voting ending in 16 states. This is a big hour. Um, Alabama, Connecticut, Delaware, Florida. Illinois, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, Mississippi, Missouri, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Tennessee. And then a half hour later, Arkansas is all alone at 8.30 p.m. Eastern time. A lot of ground here to cover. Uh, Zach and Emily, tell me about some races or states you're going to be watching in that big block of states that completes voting at 8 p.m. Eastern. I'll be keenly watching New Hampshire, first in the nation during presidential primaries, but second during midterm election nights. (laughs) Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan won her last race by just over 1,000 votes. Her Republican challenger this time around, Don Bolduc, is viewed as much weaker than the Republican Senator Hassan vanquished in 2016. But if Bolduc continues to pick up momentum, Republicans are definitely in for a good night. We're also watching Democratic Representative Chris Pappas's toss-up race against Republican Caroline Levitt in the 1st District in New Hampshire. Those populous parts of the state, like Manchester and the Seacoast, will be critical to both Hassan and Pappas's races. And if Democratic Representative Annie Custer loses to Republican Robert Burns, Dave Wasserman at the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter estimates Republicans are probably on their way to picking up at least 30 House seats. Another race that I'm going to be watching very closely is Connecticut's fifth. I know that we have a number of strategists, particularly Republicans, who are going to be watching this one pretty closely. Biden would have won this district by 11 percentage points. Just a few months ago, no one was really watching this district. Congresswoman Jonna Hayes was looking like she was going to coast to re-election. But Republicans have begun spending in this district around the end of August. It's one of a number of districts that Republicans are spending in where Biden would have otherwise won by double digits. And so they're hoping that their nominee, Republican candidate George Logan, is going to be able to pick up this seat, give Republicans a stronger foothold in the New England area, and really be a a good bellwether for the other races that are coming that would have been solidly Democratic in a different year, but in a year where Biden's poll numbers are so low and where the economy just isn't doing so great, Democrats could be in for a really, really rough night. It's 9 p.m., and rather than watching the Phillies already losing to the Astros, as I've usually done this hour for the past week, we'll instead be watching results pour in from New York, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Iowa, Louisiana, Texas, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. Emily, which of those 15 states are you watching? 
Oh, I'm going to be watching so many of them, but I think a particularly interesting one is going to be Texas, uh, because early mo- early votes and mail-in ballots are going to be counted quickly after polls close, and so we'll start actually seeing results come in in that state a little bit faster than others. And of course, the races really to watch there are those ones near the border, Texas 15, 34, 28. Democrats have the best chance to hold on to Texas 28, where Democrat incumbent Henry Cuellar is pretty popular, but in Texas's 34th, new district lines have gone in to effect that should benefit Democrat incumbent Vincente Gonzalez, who is switching districts. But again, because of the economy, because of Biden's poll numbers, and because of a specific play that Republicans are making for Hispanic voters, particularly those near the border, this could wind up being a really good night for Republicans in that area. If you have any doubts of how important this area is going to be, uh, Kevin McCarthy was there just this past weekend campaigning with candidates down there. So this is certainly one that Republicans are staking on and could really give a hint as to what's going to happen with the Hispanic vote in 2024 and beyond. Thanks, Emily. Everything's bigger in Texas, including the takeaways. Greg, what about you? A lot of turf to cover in this 9 p.m. hour, but if I had to pick one state, it'd be New York. This is a state where Democrats hope to um, put in their own congressional map to favor their party, but that was struck down by a court and a uh, different map was implemented that uh, creates more competitive districts uh, for the Democrats than they would have preferred. Um, I'm looking at some districts, including in the uh, parts of the Hudson Valley, uh, the 17th, 18th, and 19th districts. The 17th district, you have Sean Patrick Maloney, who's also the chair of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. That's the campaign arm of U.S. House Democrats. Uh, he faces a stiff challenge against Republican Assemblyman Mike Lawler. This district is mostly in Rockland and Westchester counties north of New York City. It's a more Democratic-friendly district for Maloney than the district he won in 2020. Biden would have won the revised district by about 10 points compared to five points in 2020. But this district is mostly new to Sean Patrick Maloney, so he has to introduce himself to a lot of new voters. And it's, of course, it's a much more... Um, difficult political environment, I think, for, for Democrats than it was in 2020. No national party chair has been defeated for re-election in the November general election since 1980. So three districts to watch. Elsewhere in New York, you've got one competitive race in the Syracuse area and maybe as many as three competitive districts on Long Island. So uh, New York will be definitely a state to watch in that 9 p.m. time block. It is 10 o'clock. I am cracking open my fourth Red Bull of the evening. Montana, Utah, and Nevada's polls all close. Greg, what are you watching? One state that's always interested me politically is Montana. Um, kind of a you know populist, purplish state, probably a little bit red right now. Has a history of electing Republicans to federal office, but uh, more friendly to Democrats in some statewide offices. And Montana gained a seat in the 2020 reapportionment, a uh, fast-growing area. And so Montana had just one statewide district for three decades. Now it has two. And the uh, the westernmost district, the first district, will pit Republican Ryan Zinke against Democrat Monica Trinnell, who's a lawyer and former uh, U.S. Olympic rower. If uh, Ryan Zinke's name sounds familiar, it should because he uh, represented Montana's statewide district before he went on to become uh, Donald Trump's first interior secretary. Zinke has faced questions about his ethical conduct, um, but it is a Republican-leaning district, not as heavily Republican as the uh, eastern 2nd Congressional District in Montana. So Zinke's probably the favorite here, but it's definitely a race to watch uh, in that 10 p.m. time block. 
The chips are down in Nevada, where Democratic Senator Catherine Cortez Masto is facing off against Republican Adam Laxalt. Cortez Masto is seeking only her second term and has been largely seen as Democrats' most vulnerable incumbent. If she manages to fend off Laxalt, it'll be tough for Republicans to take back the Senate without going through the state. Las Vegas is also hosting three key House races, where Democratic representatives Dina Titus in the first, Susie Lee in the third, and Stephen Horsford in the fourth are facing Mark Robertson, April Becker, and Sam Peters, respectively. The four federal races and a competitive gubernatorial contest has made Clark County key, so watch turnout in that diverse Las Vegas-based jurisdiction. Also worth watching, Washoe County of Reno-based Swing County. And then at 11 p.m. hour, we've got Idaho, Washington State, Oregon, California. And then uh, later in the evening, you know, we have at midnight, we have Hawaii in its own uh, time block. And then, you know, 1 a.m. in Alaska, the Aleutian Islands finish voting at 1 a.m. Most of the state uh, will finish at midnight as well. So let's go ahead and group these uh, states together. Idaho, Washington, Oregon, California, Hawaii, and Alaska. I think what's notable about some of these states is that... Um, you know, not only they have late poll closing times, but they also have kind of more protracted methods of counting ballots. These are especially, you know, California, Oregon and Washington are uh, primarily, if not wholly, vote by mail states. And they have rules that allow ballots to be postmarked by Election Day and they can arrive uh, after Election Day. So it may take some time to figure out who some of these winners are. But uh, Emily and Zach, I'd like your thoughts on uh, what some of the uh, races and uh, districts you're watching very closely so one that I'll be watching very closely is California's 22nd district. That's the one that David Valdeo is running for re-election in. And that one is particularly interesting, even if we don't know what the results are right away, because that pivots to what the makeup is going to be of the Republican Party in Congress next year. Uh, David Valdeo, if you remember, is only one of 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump after the January 6th riots. And he's one of only two left standing. Everyone else has retired or lost their primary. It's him and Dan Newhouse. We know that Dan Newhouse is going to be reelected, but Valdeo, it's going to come down to whether or not Republicans in his district are willing to back him after he went against Trump. And if he does lose his election, it would be a signal to other Republicans that they really cannot go against Trump, that he's still very much the leader of the party, and that they still need to appeal to voters who are huge fans of the former president. Two Senate races might take a while to call. You've got Georgia, where Senator Raphael Warnock is hoping to win his second race outright on Tuesday with uh, more than 50% of the vote. And a very good night for Republicans would see challenger Herschel Walker win outright on Governor Brian Kemp's coattails. But a libertarian candidate could deprive any of those Senate candidates of 50% of the vote, pushing Warnock and Walker into a December 6th runoff that could decide control of the Senate. Then in Pennsylvania, we won't get too much clarity there because they can't count mail-in ballots until polls close. So it'll likely take a couple of days before we get real results out of the Keystone State uh, between Dr. Mehmet Oz and Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman. Then there's Alaska, where Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski and Democratic Representative Mary Peltola are up for re-election. While unofficial results will start trickling in from the last frontier early Wednesday morning, neither incumbent is expected to win 50% of the vote outright. That means that their fates will be decided November 23rd, the day before Thanksgiving, when election officials will tabulate voters' second and third choices under Alaska's ranked choice voting system. So we are definitely in for a couple of days, if not weeks, of counting ahead. 
Welcome to election month. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And by this point, um, all of us have drinking many coffees, many Red Bulls. Uh, We are probably still going to be awake. I think Greg and I were working the late shift. Zach is coming in for the early shift. So absolutely make sure that you are tuning in to Bloomberg, Bloomberg Government, Bloomberg TV, Bloomberg Radio, all of the Bloomberg for all of your election night needs. And we will look forward uh, to seeing you tomorrow and then for our post-election recap here on Down Ballot Counts. That is all we have for today's show, though. It was hosted by myself, Emily Wilkins, and Greg Giroux. Our producer is David Schultz, and our executive producer is Josh Block. We'll note here that Michael Bloomberg, majority owner of Bloomberg government's parent company, sought the Democratic nomination for president and then went on to endorse Joe Biden. Be sure to check out all the great political coverage at our website, about.bgov.com. We'll see you next time. An individual's race should not be used to help him or harm him in his life's endeavors. A pair of lawsuits has made its way to the Supreme Court, and the decision could dramatically change just who gets into which college. Bloom is effectively using the Asian community as pawns. Every lawsuit needs a villain. To mask an anti-Black and anti-Latino agenda. Does this demoralize me? No, it doesn't demoralize me. This season on Uncommon Law, we'll explore the arguments and the people driving this latest battle over affirmative action. Can the Constitution be used to remedy society's ills? I'm the only person in class who has to raise my hand and say, okay, well, actually, here's how this affects people that look like me. Does the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause prohibit all discrimination based on race? You let somebody in because of their race, you're keeping somebody else out because of their race. There might have been two or three Latinos, including me. And so somehow that's too much, somehow that goes too far. It's hard not to take that very personally. Coming October 25th, part one of a three-part series on affirmative action. What's being decided is whether black and brown people are gonna be excluded in significant numbers only on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.